Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Critical interpretations of theater of blood. <laughs> Hello, all you lycanthropic listeners out there. It's producer and co-ghost Ash here. You might notice that the audio quality in today's episode is a little spooky. Instead of re-recording the episode or scrapping it all together and throwing it in our vault of lost episodes, we felt that the caliber of this conversation merited being released anyway. We hope you enjoy these ghastly discussions we have of Vincent Price's Theater of Blood. Thank you. Welcome, friends, to the inaugural meeting of the horror movie podcast Critics Circle. Uh, settle in. <laughs> and uh, I, I, am, I, am the, I am the co-president of the Critics Circle. John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined as ever by my co-ghost host and co-president of the horror movie podcast Critics Circle, Ash. Ash, how are you doing? Um, I'm I'm very excited for a day of refinement, uh, for acting excellence on the stage, for theater. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be lovely. We've got some fresh young talent up there on the stage today, um, and some old fossils who, quite frankly, need to die out like their acting styles. Uh, it, I I could not agree more. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> So to be honest, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're very good at being like the uh, old guard pedantic movie critics who are just mean about everything. I don't even. No, think we're really not. That. We're we're really not, <laughs> uh, especially not when we're talking about uh, such an incredible film. We are talking about the Vincent Price landmark that is Theatre of Blood. So settle in, grab a bottle of your 1964 Chateau Martin, and listen closely. As Ash declaims to us, exposits, soliloquizes to us, what is Theatre of Blood all about? We wish to speak a long-forgotten name. Enrobed and sconced enshrined within limelight, our eyes now a lighthouse devoid of flame, given no choice but to scrawl our way by night. Whose hand is it which scribes the lines of our fate? Does ink spill free across the ruled page? Not when demonic hands impersonate expression within our sepulchral age. Would not this crawling hand of death recoil, tasting its first bittersweet draught of grief? On the day we lay to rest, end this toil, and taste ourselves the best-earned drink, relief. To free-chained hands brings tears of joy and flood. Join us as we discuss Theater of Blood. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> bravo! 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 Oh, God! <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, if anyone is doing any Shakespearean productions uh, in the near future, I am available. Uh, just putting that out there. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't think I've written a, a sonnet in iambic pentameter since my undergrad. <laughs> um honestly honestly uh, uh that I, I I loved I loved that so much. I I have to say that when um when we decided on Theatre of Blood, I, I did send you a very excited message just saying can you can you write the price in iambic pentameter? And, <laughs> and a bit of me, a bit of me, thought that maybe that would be a bridge too far. Maybe that would be that would be a little bit unreasonable. And honestly, once again, you have surpassed any expectations I may have had. Um, <laughs> just just remember, everybody, there is literally nothing that my co-host cannot do. <laughs> Yes, all, all all future episodes will be entirely in iambic pentameter, so look forward to that. Um we yes, let's let's let us talk about a a, a favorite, a personal hero, an icon of horror, Vincent Price and Theatre of Blood. So uh, b- let us begin 
where we have begun uh, quite often lately in the formalist f- for talking about films zone. Um, There's just no way to make it sound good. <laughs> there really isn't. We've tried. Well, what, what, what we're doing here is we are deconstructing the uh, classic framework of discussing about film by deconstructing formalism as a word itself. <laughs> But yeah, where, where do you want to start with this? As a, as if we're going to consider the formal aspects of the film, um, I just want I just want to start by talking about how good of an actor Vincent Price is. Uh, c- correct. Like, please the, theater, of, theater of Blood is essentially Vincent Price shotgunning um, Shakespeare's most famous moments. It's like a highlight reel of Shakespeare on stage, and Vin- Vincent Price gets to like you know, just do all the fun bits that he wants to do. And it's, it's so wonderful to see him kind of do, do the two things that Vincent Price does best, right? Like he, he's one of those actors where a lot of actors get typecast and it kind of destroys them, you know, like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger is a great example. Like just so many junk action movies, you know, that like clearly kind of phoning in a little bit. But like, I think Vincent Price really embraced being a villain, you know, and especially a horror villain. And he brought depth and life to a lot of like otherwise, like I'm imagining, I'm imagining the lead of Theater of Blood being just kind of literally anyone else. And it could be so stiff and so, so dry and, you know, for lack of a better word, Shakespearean. But we just see like we like honestly, this is like stage craft mixed with like camp with Vincent Price's respect for villainy. It's just fantastic. It's so good. It's anyone who says that Vincent Price. Okay, I have a theory. The same people who say that Nicolas Cage is not a good actor say that Vincent Price is not a good actor either. Um, I, I, because both of them are examples of a kind of anti-naturalism, which is antithetical to the sort of minimalism demanded of of. Uh, of kind of quote unquote good movie acting, yeah. Um, uh, Anti naturalism is, is is also good because in terms of if this was if this uh, were a stage show, his performance would be perfect, and nobody would ever kind of say that Vincent Price is a ham or is is overacting or is cliched, uh, which I don't think is true anyway. But is absolutely something which is levied against him. Yes, yeah, I, I definitely think that that's probably a common criticism of Vincent Price's acting. <laughs> but I think I think your your analogy to Nicolas Cage is so apt, right? Like like they're both doing this kind of like mega acting thing, you know? They're they're both putting more than one hundred percent into their characters, and like we emerge on the other side in like this really vibrant and exciting place, even though it does run the risk of being like little overworked at times but i think that that's that's the folly that comes with kind of like doing doing things that are a little unexpected right like vincent price is like trained for the stage you know yeah like like this is his natural habitat and he's using these like you know classic shakespearean skills it's this 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 reminds this reminds me of jean-luc picard right you know, here here we have like another like Shakespearean classically trained stage actor, and now he's like a starship captain. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I think the point is, it's like uh, it, it might seem overdone if he was in films which were not as self aware or as well made or as funny as Theatre of Blood. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, that is like the whole thing structurally. This whole film works together. And nothing in Vincent Price's performance seems incongruous to the rest of the film. No, no, it all it all fits in together seamlessly, right? Because it, 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 because his character, right, Lionheart, is like even the name Lionheart, right? This is a this is old fashioned. This is pretentious, right? Like this is this is the actor who who is so concerned with the perfection of their craft. Right. It, it, and, it, and it makes sense that, that he, he would do, you know, like the, the famous to be or not to be bit from Hamlet right before jumping off of a building. Which, you know, like, which is just, it's just an amazing moment. It's so good. 
Yeah, I, I I love I love that bit because you can tell that Vincent Price is it's just it's such a wonderful like, and we'll we'll get on to like what it means to do remixes in a bit here because I guess that's also a formalist topic, but yeah, like yeah. V- Vincent Price is is remixing acting craft here, right? We have like, uh, what is essentially a camp B horror villain, you know, like like a uh, a discount Phantom of the Opera type. But we have that woven into this like wonderful like Shakespearean stage presence where he's taking these monologues so seriously. He's like so invested in these characters and in giving them life and in like the the interpretation of the work that he's reading. Yeah, it's 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 just great. I'm so uh, you know sometimes I don't know if this is true for you, but sometimes you know I'll sit down to watch a film that we're talking about. And, you know, it'll take me a little while to kind of, like, relax into it, you know? They'll be like, I'll be like, okay, I kind of get, get where this is going. And it'll, it'll, the film will eventually win me over. But as soon as Vincent Price appears on screen, you can, as an audience member, you just get to relax. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I, I know what I'm here for. I'm going to settle in. I'm going to listen to that beautiful enunciation of every syllable. Uh, and we're going to have a good time. I just I love it. I love his voice. Really, really. What what is Vincent Price bad at? Challenge. <laughs> uh, literally nothing, as far as I'm concerned. Right. From from cookbooks to Shakespearean acting, he's knocking it out of the park twenty four seven. What I think, um, just really quickly to touch on here, like one of the things that I find to be because Shakespeare kind of endures, right? And of course, part of that is the work of empire, you know, like, like Shakespeare is like the last bit of English culture that Stephen Moffat hasn't destroyed, unless I missed something. Yet. Yeah, yet, dot, dot, dot. I mean, I, I, now I'm, now I'm suspicious that we're going to get a comment where it's like, actually, did you see this 90s production where, you know, he absolutely did do that. But like, and I think that's like a huge part of it too, right? Like you, you have like, it is, it is part and parcel with reproducing cultural hegemony, but I think also it's, it's remix culture too, you know, like Shakespeare just keeps getting remixed and remixed into things because nobody really owns Shakespeare, you know, so you can get theater of blood, which is, which is this kind of like kaleidoscope of Shakespeare and like campy horror villainy. And then you get other stuff like Tromeo and Juliet and hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm, where it's just like these just embracing the most vulgar and ludicrous and violent elements in Shakespeare and just amping them up, you know, like times a thousand percent uh, with the lead singer of Motorhead as your narrator, you know, and there's and there's something, you know, like there's something uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say anti-capitalist within this. Right. But there is a freedom that you have with art that's in the public domain in terms of what you can do with it, you know, that you don't have with like star Wars, you know, like if your star Wars in the park starts getting too successful, Disney will shut you down. Yeah. I will. We'll get onto this. We'll get onto this in, in due course. And I think it's, I think it's actually a really good point, but it ties into lots of bigger issues around like cultural circulation and universality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, the, the idea that there is a kind of universal narrative in Shakespeare mm-hmm. or whether there's a particularity to it. And I think what these, what this, this idea of kind of remixing Shakespeare shows is that there is uh, an a kind of inexhaustible plasticity to the narrative, right? You can, you can take the beats and you can kind of put them into a variety of new and exciting shapes, um, which is what theatre generally does, right? This is what Lionheart says to the critics. Have you not noticed? I've been restaging all of the best bits from these plays as kind of bold and innovative theatre pieces, which is a cool mm-hmm. little meta commentary that the film puts up on the idea of remixing and, and remaking art in the first place. Yeah, I think that's the, that's a fantastic way to look at it, right? And we we even see that uh, was it? It's the it's the bit where they're doing the Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, where. We, we we get that line where they're where they're bringing the critic into the theater and they're like oh it's like it's this is really modernist it's got audience participation here are your lines and and our our, our film critic is like oh wow this is this is exciting this is fresh yeah yeah exactly and it's, and it's all orchestrated by the guy that he panned so hard he jumped off a bridge yeah absolutely 
Um, and, and of course, you know, they say that we've made some alterations and one big cut to the Merchant of Venice, <laughs> which is just, mm, just a, delish, a delicious line. The, the, the comedy beats in this are so incredibly strong. I, I've got to be honest. Like, I've got to be honest. This has got maybe one of the best pratfalls I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, which which was? Um, it is when Horace Sprout is decapitated in the night and the maid walks in and mm-hmm. Mr. Sprout, Mr. Sprout realizes that he's that he's dead and just sort of vanishes out of frame. Yep. It's just it's just perfectly timed. And there are so many occasions watching this where I was I was genuinely laughing out loud. I I couldn't agree more. This is this movie is funny. Uh, the setup is interesting like all, all around like the- theater of blood i think is like an underrated gem like i don't think enough people in the vincent price like pantheon i don't think theater of blood has nearly a high enough seat uh i i i absolutely agree um i i said this to you i think my i, I don't even know if this is a controversial take but i think this is the best vincent price movie it's definitely up there i think it would be hard for me to pick the one, you know, like the one Vincent Price movie to to rule them all. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I just like so many of them. But this one, I think they all showcase like different different sides of his his ability to create characters, right? Like different acting techniques. And and this 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 one is just I, I think it's his most interesting performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I I think so too. I think so too. So how do you feel about sword fights? Um well I <laughs> I had a really weird moment watching this, um, mostly because the sword fight film between Lionheart and Devlin is 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 the scene is filmed in an in an old nineteen seventies comprehensive school gymnasium, and what was so weird to me was watching this and going, "Oh my god, that's where I went to school." I went what I, I went to school in a place exactly like this. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't literally the same school. That is wild. But it was like seeing that the environment, I was suddenly like, oh my goodness. I, I had this sort of almost Proustian moment of kind of being just, just jolted out of time and sent back to this this uh, this crappy secondary school that I went to. Um, and the thing that it made me think about is it's very it's very obviously aiming towards the kind of theatrical revenge plot but it's done mm-hmm. in a really naturalistic setting, right? So it's done. Yeah, definitely. And there is a series of lectures by the incredibly famous British theatre director, Peter Brook, called The Empty Stage. Uh, and he, he says, um, you know, give me a, a bare piece of ground and I will give you a stage. You know, all, all I need is an, is, an, is an empty piece of floor and I, I can create a stage for you. Because that's what theatre is. It doesn't need the kind of like hyper-realism um, so you have in that in that scene you have something which is this incredibly fascinating uh, collision between theatrical style and contemporary filmmaking in a way that's just kind of endlessly interesting. And yeah, I had this I had this very kind of strong reaction because I was like, oh my god, I'm having flashbacks to secondary school because uh, I t- I remember those wall bars that they made you climb up. Um, <laughs> I think I think this is this is also really interesting because it's it's as if the demon of eternal recurrence appeared to you and was like, "Hey John, do you want to live it all again?" Except for this time, Vincent Price is in the background of every moment of your life. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, eternal recurrence with solid upgrade. Um, yeah. So uh, so just a kind of little a little moment of of, of yeah the, the 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 viewer being drawn into the film. Uh, as you would be watching watching a theatrical production, and I the the sword fight for me is is really interesting too because I like all of our uh, stage critics, our theater critics in this because they're all intensely bad at staying alive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, awful, just awful. <laughs> and in, in mo- most of them are caricatures, right? Like they're they're cardboard cutouts of what a what a art critic is. You know, like we we have the high society type, you know, who who's just looking at things uh, from from like the the gilded tower of their class position, 
you know, we have we have like the the one who just needs to be mean about literally everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but then like, you know, like uh, Devlin, De- Devlin's kind of our, our protagonist. And he he's supposed to be the like level headed critic, you know, rep- representative of some kind of like platonic art criticism that doesn't exist. And like, it, it, so at this point in the movie, a bunch of his friends have been killed. He knows, I mean, like he can't solidly prove it, but he 100% knows that it's Lionheart who's doing all these murders. All of these murders are are recreations of scenes from Shakespearean plays. And he, he goes to fencing, to fencing class. And it's the gym is completely empty. There's not a soul in sight, except for one man with a bad German accent who who t- takes the tip off of his fencing sword. And like how how at what point do you just go like oh well this is clearly a trap meant to kill me in Shakespearean fashion? Yeah, this is. Hmm, hmm. Does anything about this feel strange? No, it's fine. It's fine. So I I love I love our our film critics in this. I love how they play because Vincent Price is doing classical stage interpretations of Shakespeare in addition to kind of like a Dr. Fibes-esque villain. And like everyone around him is a complete ham and it's just the most beautiful thing in the world. It's so good, isn't it? It's it's just so, so good. Well, I think we should begin at the beginning. Um, so so we, should, we should enter our theater of discourse. Everybody, please take your seats. The discourse is about to begin. <laughs> Let's talk about George Maxwell, shall we? Yes, let's do it. Uh, so George Maxwell is uh, another critic. Um, the The film opens with him complaining to his deeply disinterested wife that the editor has removed the, um, the best line and the most cutting, withering line from his review, um, which is why he decides to... Um, publish a resignation letter and then start a Substack. Um, <laughs> he, he gets he gets a phone call because he is also as well as being a critic, he is the chair of a property development company that is building a new development of flats in, in Bermondsey. Um, and this all of this all of this happens coincidentally on the Ides of March. Um, and his wife says, please don't go, don't go, because the company are reporting the police have been called because there are squatters who are refusing to leave. Um, and the what do you think of the opening scene, the, the confrontation between Maxwell and the, uh, the, 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 the people who are occupying the building? So I don't know how a movie from 1973 did this 15 years before I was born, but this film has surgically engineered uh, the most dislikable character for me personally. <laughs> we we have a landlord who is a mean movie critic, uh, or I guess a stage critic in this sense. But it's just like everything about this guy. I'm just like, just please please Shakespeare him immediately. <laughs> it's like the it's like the it's like the evil inverse of you. As <laughs> I'll accept that. I'll take. I'll take that. <laughs> I I I really liked the scene though because I think it 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 beautifully it, it's a beautiful bit of character work, right? Because it so clearly conveys his false sense of confidence in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, he he never bothers to vet the two uh, uh, cops that show up to escort him and help him kick these you know like unhoused people out of the squat, right? And like. He, he has no concern that anything could ever happen to him, a member of high society. And he just like walks into this pit of people and starts like prodding them with a stick. And he's like, get up, get on, come on, let's go. <laughs> like, oh, it's so his, his self-certainty is just so vulgar. And of course, this directly ties back into what we are paying homage to what we are, um, what we are uh, parodying, because this is a parody, it's not a pastiche. So mm-hmm. it, the, the parody is that which gestures back to another more more um, more historical uh, text, um, increasingly what we have are pastiches rather than, rather than parodies. 
So uh, what I think is really interesting is that politically you have something kind of similar to what happens in, in Julius Caesar. Of course, the motivation for um, uh, for, for Brutus's murder um, in, in the long conversation at the beginning of Act 1 with Cassus is that Caesar now thinks of himself as something greater than the ordinary people of the Roman Republic. You know, um, mm-hmm. he, he, he's, he's suddenly this, he's being lauded as a, as, a, as, a, as a kind of god amongst men, when in fact he's an ordinary, fragile human, just like all of us are. Uh, and exactly the same thing happens here, right? Um, Caesar, of course, is, is fundamentally anti-democratic, uh, uh, and he uh, he wanders into this. Uh, Maxwell wanders into this this building and just starts imperiously trying to beat people out of the way um, before you know getting seized. Um, <laughs> oh, and just for the record, how good is the camera movement? Um, like I I love the way this film is shot. It's shot in such there are so some really interesting choices of where the camera is put and how scenes are staged. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and <laughs> it, in a way that kind of violates the 180 degree rule. So you have like, yes. you have like shots from underneath where you're, you know, the camera is next to somebody's feet and it's looking up at their faces or you, you have them shot, but from um, through plastic wrap and things like that. But the opening scene is just, is just the kind of like, you know exactly what's going to happen just as you know what's going to happen with Caesar, and you've had literally a minute or 90 seconds of setup, and it communicates so much, so quickly, so well. I couldn't agree more. And and the embrace of the fact that movies are made on a stage, in the way that the cinematography is done here, I just think is brilliant. Like it's it's nothing short of just this incredibly clever way to reassess what the movie is, right? Because we're so preoccupied with the kind of dissolution of the stage, mm-hmm. you know, like to the point where like, you know, like the behind the scenes footage of the Avengers movie is just a bunch of like people running around in a green backdrop. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I watched some behind the scenes for uh, uh, the Snyder's Justice League and like, there's a lot of scenes of like Superman fighting characters, but he's literally just throwing around like what are effectively, uh, you know, like uh, green screen, green pillows. <laughs> yep. Um, and then like, you know, even, even with the Mandalorian, right? Like uh, they, they invented this new, like uh, 360 wrap around LCD screen. So it's not, it's not CG anymore, but you're seeing this projection around you. So it's, it's a stage in every sense of the word that is attempting to dissolve the existence of the stage. And the fact that this movie, you know, like obviously it's not in communication with contemporary CGI cinema, but the fact that this movie is just so it's so directly embracing the fact that you can't escape the presence of the stage Mm -hmm. as a central part of your movie. Like the stage will always be there no matter like, if you're if you're filming on site in Death Valley or something like it's still a stage. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also love the link between um, c- cultural capital and an actual capital. You know, mm. <laughs> this person yeah. is is a is a critic, um, and is fairly senior um, in in a very powerful cultural institution, which is the Critics Circle. But they're also uh, chair of a property development company and it's like those two things are not necessarily antithetical just because um i remember one of my one of my lecturers uh, during undergrad once once said to us that universities were obsessed with metrics like employability whereas if you really study english literature you'll probably never work a day in your life really <laughs> you'll never have a you'll never have an honest job um and yeah in retrospect he was kind of right <laughs> but but there isn't necessarily a link between a kind of like progressive or even leftist politics and cultural investment, right? Cultural capital is, especially in a city like London, goes hand in hand with property mm-hmm. and wealth yep. and landlords. So those two things are not contradictory in the slightest, right? Oh, n- not not at all. And I mean, like the the scene where we see Lionheart's suicide, you know, when he when he jumps from this tower, like 
the, the way that it's framed, it's like this penthouse suite above the Thames, you know, like these, these people aren't like slumming it in an art cafe somewhere, you know, on the outskirts of London or whatever, like they are in the heart of the city, a, a place where like, you, you couldn't more aggressively engineer an environment that is designed to drive people out mm-hmm. than you can with the heart of London. Oh, yeah, you know, it's the commentary there. I mean, even for a movie that is now almost 50 years old is still so relevant. Do you think we should talk about critics? Should we talk about the critics? Yes, let's talk about let's talk about our jobs. <laughs> um, and I guess I guess maybe the thing that this film poses is the idea of what does it mean to be a cultural critic? What, what did you think about that angle? So what, what I think is really interesting about this is what the critics are actually doing in their quote-unquote criticism, you know, like, because they're not, I, I would I would motion to argue that what they're doing is not actually any kind of art criticism, you know, like, like we have, we have the one critic who, who complains about his most, like, scathing line being taken from his review to the point where he'll resign, yeah. a la, you know, like, he, he, he pulls a Glenn Greenwald there and just vanishes... <laughs> Yeah, and oh my god, that Substack joke killed it earlier. <laughs> but no, like, like they're all just deeply invested in their own cruelty at this point. Mm-hmm. It's not actually a, a criticism of, of art, it's a performance. You know, like, they, they exist to lambast these things, and there's no, there's no self-awareness in what they're doing, right? They're propping up their own kind of cultural hegemony, rather than actually interrogating art on any kind of meaningful terms. Yes, in in a, in a way, the 2021 equivalent of our art critics for this um, are those YouTube movie reviewers that get like 700,000 reviews, but their movie review is like, like, uh, you know, Marvel Phase 4 hype is real at pre-release event <laughs> or something like that, you know? Like, they're, they're like, oh, we got invited to this Disney pre-release and of course the movie is amazing. You should go see it sponsored by Disney and Pop-Tarts. You know, like that, that is the 2021 equivalent of these guys. There's been this move from a very antagonistic mode of criticism to to one where there is no antagonism at all. But the function, I, I think, is still almost entirely the same because it's just to prop up this kind of like capitalistic cultural hegemony. You know, like whether it's being super mean to the art and artists or being super kind to them, it's still, interestingly enough, I think it's still doing something very similar. It's still not actually concerned with engaging with the art in any sense of that phrase. It's just concerned with kind of reproducing this product. Yeah. And the the notion that, you know, uh, criticism is itself a form of art, I think is... um, is 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 it's really important and it's kind of missing here right because if anything uh this sort of slide into a really hyper deferential hyper commercialized mode of criticism just shows the extent to which media gigantic capitalist media conglomerates have basically just tried to cut cut out the middleman and you incorporate criticism as an arm of branding or an arm of marketing and criticism is not Mm -hmm. about uh, is not about marketing Criticism is not about unnecessary negativity, um, yep. but is about the communication and engagement with uh, the ideas contained within the artwork. Exactly. I mean, like, it, it has to be an intentional practice, right? When, you, when you're doing any kind of art criticism, whether, and I mean, like, this, this, this doesn't mean that your art criticism has to necessarily always be engaged with some kind of, like, social or political teleology you know like it could just be strict and dry formalist discussion but it it, it has to be aware it has to be engaged otherwise you wind up just like doing pr for disney yeah precisely precisely and that's that i think is what we try and do right we 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 don't want to be unnecessarily negative although there have been lots of films that we don't like or, or don't enjoy but we've always tried to take seriously uh, what has been kind of important or noteworthy within it within a text, right? Good criticism is is in and of itself an art form, and an art form which is dialectically in conversation 
with the work upon which it comments and responds to. So good criticism is more than just ding. <laughs> there is there is there is there is good criticism currently being practiced and I think we're part of it. We're not the only people doing it. But I think it's very easy to conflate like again what is essentially just a brand a, a branch of yeah. Disney's marketing or Marvel's marketing department with people who actually want to try and engage with artwork and 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 kind of respond to it on its on its own terms and merits and ideas. Right. And, and it ties back to the the way these critics are depicted in Theater of Blood, right? Because they're all caricatures oh, yeah, yeah. of 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 different like high class positions. They're different different types of like wealthy people who are unconcerned with the world around them outside of these like very little like narrow corridors of perspective. Yeah, it's a certain kind of like insular um lovey rhetoric, you know. Very plummy, very well-fed, very unconcerned with anything other than, you know, the next matinee and getting the best table at the restaurant near the theatre. Um, but they're not actually concerned with, you know, how, how what's the relationship between the, between the critic's subject and the art object? You know, how do, we, how do we understand that? What are we even doing here? And I think that's, that's, that's just an important question, is what are we doing you know, like what what is the project of the criticism, and and I I really like the you know criticism as a modality of art within itself. Mm-hmm. You know, like I- embracing that is explicitly a rejection of this kind of falsified idea that we can be objective as as critics of art, right? That that we are somehow outside of of the the context in which this thing was created, and we can we can weigh its merits. With, yes. with like a clean heart, you know, we're, but we're, we're embroiled within it, you know, like we're, we're baked within the pie we are trying to critique. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, like two toy poodles, uh, we are baked <laughs> within the pie we are trying to critique. I, That'll get us back on track. <laughs> well, well, what I wanted to, to bring up actually was, uh, a, a quote from an unexpected source, um, and the, the film critic A.O. Scott talked, uh, went on a show called This Movie Changed Me, which is interviews with people talking about formative films. And Scott talks about um, Ratatouille, the Pixar movie. Um, <laughs> and Rat- Ratatouille... Please, please go on and say something that sounds like something I might have said. <laughs> Rat- Ratatouille features a critic called Anton Ego, which is a great name for a fictional food critic who is voiced by Peter O'Toole. Uh, and at the very end uh, of the film, Ego writes a review. Um, and I, I honestly I honestly think it's one of the most kind of moving meditations on what criticism actually is, uh, which just says, and I, I'll only read very little bit of it. Um, Ego says, in many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and mm-hmm. themselves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. But the bit of truth we, we must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. But there are yes. times when a critic truly risks something, and that is in the discovery and defense of the new. The world is often unkind to new talent and new creations. The new needs friends and that's in a pixar movie <laughs> <laughs> i i looked i looked it up today after watching the watching theater of blood and it's like all of those critics thrive on negative criticism mm-hmm. but they don't realize that actually the worst piece of junk is probably more meaningful than any of their criticism designating it as junk exactly i think this this unintentionally speaks to the reason why I'm drawn to like these these like half alive obscure beat up Z movies, you know, and these weird little experiments, you know, because people people try and work so hard, and even like I know I'm so hard on all of the Marvel movies and like Disney Disney in general, but like you know like i i've i I, or like all the superhero movies more broadly but like i've watched the venom movie like maybe four times in the last 30 days (laughs) um 
and it is it is truly high craft cinema. <laughs> but like, yeah, like there's 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 so much worth exploring. And if you're not risking in your art criticism, if you're just kind of like using this position as a safe way to take shots or to vindicate worldviews, it's just kind of like eh, shrug. Yeah, absolutely. Should we talk about Shakespeare? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who, who's that? Are they new? Uh, yeah, some, 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 uh, British theatre scribbler, you know, comes from the middle of nowhere. Um, so, some people like it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, the cl- the classic pretending not to know who Shakespeare is joke. Gotta love it. What do you think about, what do you think about Shakespeare in the context of this film specifically and how this film is using Shakespeare? Um, one, one of the things that I find to be really interesting is this kind of, there's a baked in class conflict to Shakespeare that I find to be really interesting, both in terms of the texts themselves, mm-hmm. um, you know, like d- depictions of class, especially reading them in a modern capitalistic context are always very interesting, I, I think, in the Shakespearean. Um, but what is also really interesting is kind of like, the, you know, the history of the Globe Theater and how Shakespeare's plays were acted, performed and viewed. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, I think there's like a lot of um, perception now that like Shakespeare was performed in like palaces for the aristocracy, you know, and it were, it were, there were somber settings that people would respectfully enjoy the high art of the time. But like the, the Globe Theater was loaded with cheap seats and mm. people would get 100,000% hammered when they watched Shakespeare, you know, like audiences would get rowdy, like it, the, the, the context contains within itself like a class division right because of course like the good seats were reserved for the fancy people yeah and then it burnt down <laughs> yeah this this idea that theater is in some way a kind of high culture would be historically is it is a completely yes. new, new invention um and actually there's an interesting kind of point here where this film sort of links into the history of british theater more generally um which is like in the early half of the 20th century, British theatre was probably at one of its lowest points in terms of like its interest. It was going through the motions of, of kind of putting on the same old tired, stale plays, which had been done for decades by this point. Nobody was going to see it. Um, but in um, 1955, two things happened. You had the premiere of Waiting for Godot by Beckett, and you had John Osborne's Look Back in Anger, which was like the first of the kind of British, what they call kitchen sink theatre, you know, supernaturalistic, very, very interested in kind of ordinary people. Um, and I'm like, uh, a couple of, uh, a few years later, actually around the time of Theatre of Blood, uh, maybe the most famous British theatre critic, Kenneth Tynan, was working with Laurence Olivier at the National Theatre and was doing things like Brecht seasons and like uh, completely reinventing how the national put on all of these like ostensibly high cultural texts in really interesting ways that got a lot of attention. So there is absolutely this 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 kind of class distinction, and there's another one which is: is Shakespeare kind of universal, or is it a particular historical thing, mm-hmm. um, which is tied up in the language? Because Lionheart deliberately uses a lot of very uh, of language lifted directly from the text, and mm-hmm. it isn't. It's not modernized. It's not changed. What do you think about that aspect of it? What I find to be really interesting from that, from like a historical perspective, is that I don't know if it's possible to entirely pick this one apart because part of the we we do view Shakespearean stories. Mm-hmm. as universal right like it's a it's a very common film criticism to just say like oh this is just uh T- titus andronica remade you know like it's the same beats but i think mm-hmm. part of the reason why we're capable of saying that is just the sheer ubiquity of shakespeare you know like it's it's taught in virtually every school to some extent you know like the the references made to shakespeare could be found in cartoons and anime and you know everything from like 
you know, like tra- trauma has literally made Shakespeare movies. Yep, absolutely. And then we have and we have like high art stage productions of Shakespeare that are the, the pinnacle of like quote unquote cultural and craft. And I think that that get, that puts us in this perspective where the reproduction of Shakespeare is almost guaranteed, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a ubiquitous story that we're all given to reference, and so it only naturally makes sense that we all reference back to it. Yeah, and I actually think that's I actually think that's 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 a kind of great thing about it that there is there isn't this staid vision, you know, this kind of uh, trapped in amber understanding of what Shakespeare is, uh, but it is a series of stories which are endlessly uh, reinterpretable. Yeah, if anything, I mean, like Shakespeare is the best test case for why we need to abolish copyright law. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. I knew there'd be a moment where you would get me to be like, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's, 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 I mean, we're, we're free to, we're free to use these pieces. No one owns Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare's in the public domain. Anyone can make a Shakespeare, whatever they want, whenever they want. You want to make a Shakespeare t-shirt, painting, redo the play, readapt it, remix it, faithfully redo it. You can, you know, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that with literally every single uh, Marvel, DC, Disney I, I, intellectual property, right? You know, like it's the same for music too. Like there's no there's no good reason why Metallica's music is under copyright. Um, you know, yeah. I, Sh- I, shout out! Shout out to them getting uh, fucking hit with the ban hammer when they were doing like a Twitch performance of their own music because it struck a copyright law. <laughs> Live by the sword, die by the sword, Metallica. <laughs> um, I, I actually think this brings up a really interesting question then, which is there is, a, there is something that like very formulaic horror and Shakespeare have in common, which is their inherent familiarity. Um, and I, 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 I don't know. Is, is Shakespeare proto-horror? Ooh, I think that's a good question. I I, th- I think like this 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 begs the question of w- who makes genre boundaries and and what purpose are they for? Yeah, totally. And and I think the answer is as it always is, yes. I I, I don't know. I was just thinking about it, and it's like, you know, people e- even if even if you're not terribly familiar with Shakespeare, you know the famous bits, right? We know Caesar getting stabbed by Brutus. We know. Um, Hamlet's to be or not to be speech um, you know we know uh, Titus uh, Andronicus and and uh, the infamous scene with the pie um, so it's like we know all of this stuff and as soon as you start to it, it, once you've tuned in to, to Lionheart's kind of psychological frequency as soon as you see the environment you're like well and you see the character, you go, well, I know how this is going to end. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, familiarity doesn't necessarily breed kind of contempt. It can give you an appreciation for seeing something restaged or reorganized or reimagined. Genres are not bad things in and of themselves, but no, Shakespeare no. is, and Shakespeare is absolutely, I think, in, in places kind of proto-horror. Oh, no, absolutely. You know, uh, I just think that like one of the important things to always highlight about genre is is who's telling us what genre it's in. You know, is it is it organically growing out of useful uh, literary and filmic conventions that are used to communicate Mm. uh, particular ideas and themes? Or is it uh, something that marketing is kind of beating with a shovel to get it to fit, like to get, uh, you know, like the uh, square peg to fit into the round hole, you know? Yeah. And we see yeah, like, yeah. we see the casualties with that. I know I've brought up um, Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro's uh, film where the marketing department just didn't know what to do with the gothic romance. So it's it, one of his films that have suffered the most at the box office for it. Oh yeah, completely. Oh, what's your, what's your favorite kill then? What's your what's your favorite moment? If we're gonna talk about this like a horror movie, what's what's the, what's your favorite kill? Ooh, ooh, okay. So, ironically, um, it's one that doesn't come from one of my favorite works of Shakespeare. Out of all the kills in Titus Andronicus, you went for this one, um, but that's not my favorite. My favorite is the Troilus and Cressida. Uh, it's when George George Maxwell is. Uh, 
tied to a horse's tail and run through the funeral of Hector. Uh, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, is... I'm sorry, the funeral of um, another one of the things. Hector was the character in Shakespeare, whomst was dragged from a horse. Uh, which is a great uh, way of breaking up a funeral, let's be clear. <laughs> right? And it's just like, it's... there. There's kind of like a, a flat realism to how it's shot in this movie. It just kind of happens. And that makes it really you know like a lot of the kills in this movie are like like a lot of like almost slasher adjacent work in a way they're kind of silly and over the top uh the but, the, but, the one the one based on titus andronicus definitely fits into that category oh, massively ridiculous that that's like a honestly a, you know like the, this guy it just had to be so oblivious to the world around him to get murdered that way <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, the um, the the death of George Maxwell. I think the, just the way they film it, and just kind of like how casually the camera appreciates a body being dragged by a horse, it, mm. it just makes it really unsettling. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, what about you? I I actually kind of like the ones which are slightly goofy and slightly silly. Uh, I think Oliver Larding being drowned in a in a vat of wine. Oh is yeah. Just great because he's like the stereotypical. The, the gourmand character who who when is when they're under threat of being murdered by a, a slasher killer out for revenge goes aha yes i will go to my wine tasting evening <laughs> uh and i also do think uh meredith meridue is just an awful kind of grotesque you know who uh who fits right in with the with the titus andronicus uh, being force-fed um, mm-hmm. uh, poodle pie until he chokes to death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good! It's so good. Yeah, I really, I really, really liked all this. So what's your okay? Do you have a favorite Shakespeare work, and is it in this movie? Um, oh, that's that is sort of like picking a favorite Vincent Price movie. Um, I, 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 I have a few favorites. Um, which are not actually in this. Um, Same. I, uh, I really like uh, Coriolanus. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I really like um, uh, Macbeth. I really like Hamlet. Classic, classic. Um, and I really like Much Ado About Nothing. Same. Uh, what about you? Big same. Um, much Ado About Nothing, definitely up there. Midsummer Night's Dream, definitely up there. Um, I'd say out of all the ones in this, Titus Andronicus is pro- probably would be my favorite. Oh, Titus is just great. It's uh, so It's so awesome. ridiculous. Yes, yes. It is, it is, it is proto-trauma done by Shakespeare. It, it, oh my God. A trauma version of Titus Andronicus would be incredible. You wouldn't even need to change anything. You could just do a faithful adaptation. You just do. You just. It would be the most straightforward adaptation trauma I've ever done. That's beautiful. Call us, call us, Lloyd. We're here. <laughs> um, there's, there's just two more things I think we should talk about. Yes, yes, and I, I have a surprise third thing if it's not one of these two things. Well, there is the confrontation between Devlin and Lionheart, where Devlin says, you know. You did kill them, didn't you? You killed them all. And Lionheart says, how many actors have you destroyed as you destroyed mm-hmm. me? How many talented lives have you cut down? No, Devlin, I did not kill Larding and the others. Punish them, my dear boy. Punish them. Just as you shall have to be punished. What do you, what do you think about this relationship between critic and artist? You know, because like we, we've been pretty negative about some stuff. And I don't know if we have negatively impacted somebody, but what what do you think of Lionheart's motivation? So I, I find his motivation to be really interesting, and I find the context to be kind of... Context and in, in, in position within hierarchy is really important here, right? Because Devlin and his crew, they're, they're the cream of the crop. They're the most powerful stage critics in London, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're not the most powerful stage critics in, like, I don't know, Todd Morton. <laughs> yeah, well, true. You know, like, yeah, they're, they're not the most powerful stage critics in Tullamo, Illinois. 
right? Like they're they're in the beating heart of capitalism and empire, right? They wield substan- substantive power. When Leinhart comments that they've destroyed people, you know, like who, who knows how many budding budding stage actors, right? Like we're, we're cutting their teeth or maybe made some awkward missteps, unfortunately on the night when a critic was in the audience and, and we're never able to work again you know, and, and had to, and had to toil away in a different field in the rest of their life because some like snobby suit with a pen decided they weren't worth living. Mm-hmm. So I think Lionheart's criticism here is very pointed, uh, for a little, a little pun based on several of the kills in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but I think that like, what's, what's important is like, there's literally nothing that you and I could ever do to Darren Aronofsky's career. <laughs> uh, yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Despite despite our deepest and most sincere wishes that um, he retire, um, you know we're powerless here, and I think that that's that's an important kind of analysis. You know, like film films are so strange in in how they're made when compared to a staged production. You know, like so much weight is put on the director of the movie in a way that is not put on the director of a stage play. Mm. You know, like like film is seen as being kind of like the holistic and total creation of its director, where stage plays, like, I think just because you can see them being made, you can see the movie being made in front of your eyes, essentially, that you can you do allow that to disperse a little bit. Um, yeah, those are, those are just some thoughts. How about you? No, I agree. I think we have not we have not negatively impacted Darren Aronofsky in any way. Um, <laughs> Uh, and he is he is free to continue making terrible films <laughs> but i think one thing that's interesting is that like the medium of exchange has gotten much more sophisticated since this was made right mm-hmm. like you know you can have you can have critics and fans and artists actually can have really like vicious conversations online and are often uh it happens quite a lot in, in the book world because so much of book publishing and the success of a book is dependent upon the reviews that it gets. So especially yeah. on something uh, on a closed in, uh, in kind of ecosystem like Goodreads, you know, authors have become notorious for like responding really negatively if they ever get a negative review uh, because there's so much at stake for them personally. Um, so it's like in, in so many ways, like the idea of making art in whatever form is so much less stable than it used to be. Um, and so the kind of role and distinct function of a critic of critics is maybe a bit more complicated. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I think, I think another thing to highlight here is just the sheer precarity of doing either of these jobs. Yes. You know, like, they're good luck making a living as any kind of art critic also good luck making a living as any kind of artist yeah absolutely you know we're we're both we're both trying to sail sinking ships through a tempest right now and that i think uh it would behoove us to embrace a little more generosity in that situation perhaps a little bit more solidarity Mm -hmm. because again like you know like if if we cover like like a full moon pictures movie there, there are actors working on those films or people working on those films who are like just starting out their career. Right. And like, you know, like they might actually like listen to or encounter our criticism. And if, and if we're overly harsh or like mean, you know, maybe that actually gets somebody, but like Darren Aronofsky is going to sit in his fortress of money and and like, you know, (laughs) never notice us, you know, it's the same with like, you know, like if we ever did like a review of a Zack Snyder film, (laughs) Army of the Dead. <laughs> oh, what was that? Um, what? What? Who said that? Uh, nothing. Certainly, not, certainly nothing coming up in the next few months. Um, you know, like like Z- Zack Snyder's uh, fortress of uh, uh, dollar bills fused into copies of the Fountainhead. You know, he's never going to notice us. <laughs> and I think that that's that's important to respect here. Um, and I can't I can't speak so much to the literature side of things. I've definitely got friends on both sides of that coin um, who, who work in that field, but I don't. But from the film side of things, like, I think it's it just, again, it's just like, what, what are you trying to, to accomplish? You know, are you trying to like further creation and discussion and interest and ideas? Or are you trying to like score points mm. and get some dunks in, you know? 
And I think the, the prior is so much harder work. You know, it would be so easy to make this like horror sins, the podcast and just kind of like, you know, mock everything, but that's, that's, that's shallow and that's cruel. Yeah. 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 I, I, I I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And what was the, what was your secret thing you wanted to talk about? Oh, we have to talk about getting married because in this movie, uh, uh, Diana Rigg, who plays um, Edwina Lionheart, uh, Vincent Price's character's daughter, introduces Vincent Price to an actress by the name of Coral Brown, mm-hmm. um, yeah. also working on this movie. Um, Edwina didn't know at the time that Vincent Price was already married, but I guess it worked out because Vincent Price's next wife w- would actually be Brown. So, so fun, fun little quirk of this movie. Vincent Vincent Price would meet uh, his future spouse on the set of Theater of Blood. And um, so, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Are you saying that Vincent Price met his spouse whilst he was staging her to die in the same way as Joan of Arc by electrocuting her to death with hair colors? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean like 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 really like that's that's kind of an ideal meet cute there on the set of a horror movie. I mean like that's that's 10 out of 10. And I and I think what that means is that this movie uh like so many other films is also a rom-com. Uh yes. I I I actually agree with that. Oh, okay. Okay, so here's here's my rom-com pitch. It's called Theater of Love. Uh, and it's a it's a fictionalized behind the scenes of theater of blood about the uh, budding romance going on. There we go. Uh, also, so Lloyd Kaufman, call us. Uh, Hollywood, call us. <laughs> we're down. We're here. We're available. You know, like I'm. This this is how this is how you get into to directing, right? You just you just kind of like say Hollywood, call us at the end of each episode of your podcast. Oh, I'm 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 ninety percent sure that's how it works. Yeah. You know, like this is this is gonna happen. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna post our way into this, and that is gonna be the most beautiful thing in and of itself. <laughs> um, and then and then our film ends um, in homage to perhaps the greatest horror tragedy of them all, Shakespeare's King Lear. I I I really love the ending because it's a cross. It's literally a cross between King Lear and uh, James Wales Frankenstein. yes yes i I think it's i think it's like that that is that is that is just something that was kind of tailor-made for someone like me to love i i really like the sequence too because it mirrors um lionheart's suicide right and so so it it carries with it some of that energy so there's a lot of mystery about the end here like are they really dead oh yeah you know and i i really really liked that that it's not the kind of like cliffhanger ending where we see like Lionheart's hand come up through the rubble. Yeah, and yeah it emerges sure. through the smoking yeah. ruins of the Burbage Theatre. <laughs> but it, but we're le- we're left hanging with like this this really it's it's a dark uncertainty that we're left with here. Yeah, because how else could it could it end? And of course, uh, the ending just kind of reinforces one of my favorite lines, uh, which is "And you thought me slain, Lionheart is immortal." <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So good. Um, the, the only last thing I wanted to touch on here is like, and you know, it's always we're running out of time. There's never enough time, time enough at last for horror movie discussion. Uh, that's all I'm asking for. Well, it feels like the most, that's like the most like Faustian gamble of a wish I've ever made. <laughs> final thing you wanted to talk about. Um, the final thing I just wanted to touch on really briefly here. Um, and definitely we won't be able to give it the time it deserves. I don't think, but just mental health and addiction. Yes. Uh, because so Lionheart jumps off of the building after doing the to be or not to be monologue. Um, and then he kind of washes up in like this ditch with these, uh, you know, people who are, you know, suffering from clearly suffering from mental health issues, addiction, um, behavioral health problems, right? They're unhoused, mm-hmm. you know, they're clearly in need of, of a lot of social services and a lot of care. And like Vincent Price winds up becoming like they're kind of like a god king for for them, you know. Like you know, he it's intimated that he supplies them with booze, mm-hmm. yeah, and that they they kind of humor him being this uh, eccentric, murderous stage guy. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's just definitely worth putting a pin on that in the movie when you watch it, 
to kind of keep in mind how it's how it's depicting people who are going through housing insecurity and addiction and mental health issues and how they're framed within the context of what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very revealing that in the credits, there is uh, Tutti Lempkow, who is credited as the choreographer of the meth drinkers. Yes. Um, so I, I actually think that's a very, that's a very prescient point. But there are so there are so many interesting things to that, right? The fact that that the, he's he's found washed up in the river, um, he is he's rescued. He is apparently physically, uh, it seems okay, and has fallen into a very um, domineering relationship with this group of uh, of of poor, uh, unhoused uh, people who seem who seemingly have spent most of their time just trying to survive the best way that they can. Um, and I think that relationship is extremely uh, fragile, as as revealed by the ending with Edwina saying, you know, help your master burn down the theatre. Now it's your time to die gloriously for the cause. And all, most of them all run away it, quite sensibly, I think, in my opinion. Yes. <laughs> what else would one do? Yeah, yeah. Just, I just wanted to flag that up really quick because it is, it is a, a reoccurring and central thematic to this movie. Yes, absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, we spent way too much time talking about movie criticism. <laughs> well, you kind of have to. You kind of have to. In yeah, but this, it's it's a movie about our jobs. We have to do this. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's sort of like any actor who has ever gotten a bad review will love this film. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, thank you everyone uh, for for uh, attending our very first. Uh, production of our radio play uh critical interpretation of theater of blood uh, by by ash and john uh look forward to this radio play uh, on bbc radio 4 coming up uh, shortly here it's going to be fantastic that is uh a fabrication it's a bit of humor made by me it's the worst ending this is the worst ending of an episode i i, I deserve whatever devlin says about my performance here at the end <laughs> I don't. I don't deserve the podcasters award this year. And this year, the horror movie podcasters critics circle award <laughs> goes to literally anyone else. L- uh, literally horror, anyone else for this one. Horror Vanguard was found crushed in the ruins of the still smoking Vincent Price movie theater. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Stay spooky. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs> ha 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 ha